I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, the first part of the chapter tells us about a, an incident where Jesus cast the devil out of a young, uh, well, a, a man, a madman of Gadara, and, and it uh, was, uh, uh, he was very well known, and it was uh, quite a miraculous event. But it says in verse 21, we'll start in verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, that following these events, when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, <clears throat> excuse me, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. That means right next to it. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. When he saw him, he fell at his feet. And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and, that she, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. The first thing I want you to notice, we're going to keep reading and talk about the woman with issue of blood and then pick up Jairus' story afterwards. But the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus didn't say, well, now listen, if she's at the point of death, we may be too late already. It's an amazing thing how, how we seem to, and, and I, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I have the same natural tendencies as everybody else does. But it's an amazing thing how we seem to judge things based on the physical appearance or how things look to our natural eye as to whether or not they're possible. God's been dealing with me a lot about, uh, and I've been studying a lot about miracles and meditating on the impossible things that the Bible talks about that God has done for us and so forth. <clears throat> and it's almost like we say, well, there are impossible things, and then there are really impossible things. Like, for example, a healing, you know, the, the healing power of God. We believe in the healing power of God, but boy, if something is critical, if something is too late, you know, that's a different matter. Well, what makes it different with God? Has God ever come up on any situation where anybody, any one of his children has ever been in need and God said, well, you know, <laughs> that's a little bit too far out there. And why in the world would we ever consider that same possibility? Now, I know that we are human beings and as a result, we have a flesh and we have five physical senses. And, and for the most part, we spend our lives, um, well, most people don't even do this, but once you find the truth of the word and find out how things work and find out that you're a spirit being, we struggle against our five physical senses to believe what the word says instead of what we see and feel. Like I said, most people never even do that. Most people never figure out that they're a spirit being and that their senses are working against or contrary to the blessings of the word, uh, the blessings that the word of God tells us Jesus has purchased for us or redeemed us to obtain. But... Nevertheless, it seems like we are so quick to judge from a natural standpoint. We're so quick to tell God what he can and can't do. And really, we don't even think about that's what we're doing, but that is what it is. When we think something is too far gone, we're thinking that's too big for God. I wonder what God gets greater glory or, or pre pleasure from doing things that we think he can do or doing things that we think he can't. If you were God, which one would you want to go for? If the whole purpose of healings and miracles and so forth was to prove your goodness and your love to mankind, which would you want to do? The things that people say, well, yeah, that can happen. It's, it's always funny to me when, uh, well, like I said, I've been uh, studying and reading up on miracles and things like that. And I came across an article not long, that was written not long ago that, uh, that says scientists have proven that the ten plagues in Egypt could have existed. I thought, well, isn't that big of them? 
They've come up with this idea, and I mentioned some of it this morning if you were with us, about how the volcanic eruption created a, um, uh, you know, the red tide algae that turned the, the water red. So what science is saying, at least what this article claimed, is the water didn't really turn to blood. It just looked red like blood. And then it talked about how that the, the, you know, the red algae would have killed the fish and that would have caused the, the frogs to leave and go up on shore and then they would have uh, been without anything to eat so they would have died on the, the shore and then the flies would have come as a result of that and the lice and then the flies would have contracted disease from the dead frogs and then they would have bitten the cattle and they would have given the cattle anthrax and on and on and on and on and on. It's just this natural ma- manner of thinking one way after another, one thing after another, one step after another. Where, um, where people are trying to explain away the supernatural and miraculous things of God. I, um, I almost hate to admit it, but I saw that, that uh, new movie. Well, it's not new anymore, but it uh, came out about a month or so ago uh, about uh, the Exodus, God and Kings. And I was amazed to find out that the Nile turned to blood because of the crocodiles eating people in the water. Now, we can make fun of this stuff all day long, and it, it's really sad. I mean, I, I saw one commentary about it that uh, somebody was really upset about it because they said, even though Hollywood didn't get it all right, at least when Cecil B. DeMille did the parting of the Red Sea, it, it, it established an idea of the biblical example where Charlton Heston as Moses was, part, it was parting the water. Some of the rest of this new stuff is just, you know, who knows. I guess it's unsaved people on drugs trying to figure out the Bible. At least that's what it seems like sometimes. Nevertheless... It's an amazing thing how that, that, and we can see it so clearly in certain Hollywood films and, and uh, things like that we've just talked about. But really, we have a tendency to do the same exact thing. We have a tendency to tell ourselves what God can do. And that's one of the greatest hindrances to faith. J.R. says, my daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so she'll be healed and she'll live. Seems like a pretty simple request. And Jesus doesn't question him. He doesn't say, now, wait a minute. What's wrong with her? How bad is she? How long has she had this? How far gone is the situation? None of that is even a consideration. Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. Now they get interrupted. Verse 25, and a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Please notice that hers is an incurable condition. She's been to every doctor she can. She's spent every dollar she has. It's an incurable situation. It's an impossible, a medically impossible situation. But when she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue, King James says virtue, it's literally the word power, it's the word dunamis, which we, or dynamon literally, and it, uh, it's where we get the word dynamite from in the English language. It's talking about power. Jesus, immediately going, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and behold of thy plague. Now let's stop the story right there before we pick it up with Jairus. Put yourself in Jairus' position. What are you thinking all the time this is going on? We can read it in a few verses, but this had to be something that took minutes at least. 
We don't know how far they walked. We don't know how long it was that the woman uh, it took to reach out and touch him. We don't know how long Jesus had to look around to find out who she was, how long it took the disciples to say, we don't know who it was. Everybody's trying to touch you. And uh, so how are we going to find one single person that touched you? We don't know how, any, how long any of these things happened. But if you're Jairus, if you're the mother or the father of this daughter that's at home at the point of death trying to get Jesus there in time, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, can we walk while we're talking? Can we continue to make progress toward my house? That's the only thing I'm going to have on my mind. I'm going to be saying, look, Jesus, I'm glad if everybody in the crowd gets healed, I'm glad. But can we do that later? Because I want him to get to my daughter. I already believe that he has something that will heal her and make her live, keep her alive. And I want to get him there. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't that be a natural desire for a parent? I do not want this woman to go into detail about what happened to her. I don't want to know about how long she spent going to doctors. I don't want to know about all the money she spent going to doctors. And please understand, folks, this is part of the woman's story. Mark relates it to us only because the woman told Jesus after he found out who it was that touched him. As far as Jesus is concerned, there's just somebody that reaches out and touches him and draws on the power of God from him through the contact of her flesh with his garment. After that, everything else comes as a result of her taking the time to explain what the circumstances were. And every bit of that, during every bit of that, the clock is ticking. I can just imagine the father. He's fidgeting. He's trying to get Jesus, maybe pulling on the sleeve, saying, come on, let's go. You know, maybe not even saying anything, just kind of move him along, trying to move him along while this is going on. I'd be doing everything I could. I'd be grabbing the woman. I'd be saying, hey, come with us. I'd be doing everything I could to make Jesus get one step closer to my house. Step by step by step. Because that's obviously what he believes in. He doesn't believe that Jesus can just speak the word only and his daughter will be healed. He says, come lay your hands on her so that she may be healed and she shall live. So what does he believe in? He believes in healing through the touch of Jesus. But he can't get, he can't, Jesus can't touch her unless he gets there. This has got to be an agonizing situation for Jairus. Agonizing. I know I hate every minute when my kids get colds. When I hear my kids cough and see them with fevers or something like that. And after I've prayed, I hate every moment that the devil's trying to do something in their flesh. I can just imagine what Jairus is going through. Verse 35, while he yet spake, while Jesus is still saying, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Good news for her. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, certain which said, thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Worst possible news. You got a critical situation and now it's not just critical, it's past critical, it's too late. Can you, as a parent, imagine worse news in the middle of the situation? I'm not sure the guy had time to think this out, but if he had time to think it out, he's probably thinking, if only this woman hadn't stopped us. I'm not going to be necessarily, (laughs) at least I'm going to be tempted not to be glad for her healing any longer. I'm going to be thinking, why couldn't she have come to Jesus after we finished? Why did this have to stop us? 
As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said unto the ruler of the synagogue, be not afraid, only believe. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. Jesus steps in before this guy can speak. Jesus steps in, speaks to the man, gives him instruction before he has a chance to say a word. What is the word that the man has spoken? Now, notice Jesus doesn't tell him something else. He doesn't tell him to do something else. He doesn't say, now, wait a minute. Let me explain something to you. Before, when she was still alive, it was a matter of healing. Now that she's dead, that's not healing anymore. So it's going to take a different kind of believing. It's going to take a different kind of faith. Now I need you to start believing in the raising of the dead. Now, raising of the dead would have to include the working of miracles. It would take a miracle to raise somebody from the dead. And there would need to be a, a gift of healing associated with that too because whatever, if, if you did raise somebody from the dead by the miracle working power of God, whatever killed them the first time would still be there and would kill them the second time. But Jesus doesn't explain any of that to the man. He simply says, be not afraid, only believe. In other words, hold fast to what you've already believed. What did the man believe? Well, what he said was, Come lay your hands on my daughter that she may be healed and she shall live. So what he's expressed about her living is enough to stand on, enough to continue on with the faith that he's already expressed. It's an amazing thing. So many times, as, as particularly as teachers, it seems to me that so many times we tie people up in knots about faith. When faith was just a simple thing with Jesus. It's just an easy thing. One case in Mark chapter 9, it talks about the, the father that brought his son to, to, uh, to Jesus. He was grievously tormented of the devil, brought his son to Jesus. Jesus wasn't there, so the disciples tried to cast the devil out of the boy. They had power and authority to do so, but it didn't work, and they couldn't figure out why it didn't work. And so by the time Jesus gets back to the crowd, the father said, My son uh, it, it has this situation. He's grievously tormented by the devil. The disciples tried to cast the devil out of him, and they couldn't. And Jesus said, It's because you don't believe. He said it this way in the King James. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long must I suffer? You bring him to me. What's he saying? He's saying, it's your lack of faith. He's talking to the father. He says, because you don't believe. Well, that sounds like the end of the story to me. Judging by the modern day circumstances anyway. Oh, well, you don't believe. Well, I guess we'll have to go get a teaching tape, maybe a series on how to believe. Spend a few weeks going over and over and over it again. Build our faith. But Jesus just simply said to the man, gave him the information so that it changed him from unbelief to faith. Right there on the spot. The man says when Jesus tells him he doesn't have faith, that he's a faithless, part of a faithless generation, he says to him, Lord, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He questions the power of God. Have you noticed the people that are unwilling to believe question God's power? So many times the modern day church says God doesn't do miracles anymore and the problem isn't God's lack of uh, effort or God's unwillingness or his lack of power. The problem is the church won't believe. But what does the church do? The church puts it off on, the, on, on God. The church says, well, God doesn't do that anymore. Says who? Well, this scripture says that. They'll come up with all kinds of scriptures and try to twist them around and none of them have anything to do with God's power being done away with. Except in their minds. It's the easiest thing in the world to put the problem over on God. Jesus put it back over on him. When the, man, when the father said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus turned it around on him and said, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's a matter of what you can believe. In other words, of course I can do this. My power is not in question. The only question is, will you believe? And the father answers. That simple truth is enough for the father to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus cast the devil out of his son. 
Wow. Jesus' faith seminar is very simply, of course I can do it if you can only believe. I'm not sure he'd make a lot of money on that tape. But that was Jesus' teaching that got the man from unbelief to a receiving faith position. Are you with me? Faith is not some hard, difficult thing. Faith is the willingness to say. It's a choice to say, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Let's pick up the story with Jairus. Jesus says, before you can say anything to the contrary, Jesus said, be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him. Now, Jesus did know something that the other guys didn't know, apparently. Jesus knew this is something where I need a small group of people around me, not a big group. Why? Because this looks really bad to everybody and I can't have people talking against what I'm going to do. Folks, let me encourage you about something. And I'm, this, is, this is personal preference. This is not rule of thumb or the things of God or God's word to you or anything like this. But let me tell you a principle that I learned from Brother Hagen that, uh, that has served me well in over 35 years of walking in the word and so forth. If somebody can't be part of your answer, don't tell them your problem. James said it this way. James says, hast thou faith? Have it to yourself and to God. I see so so many people, well-intentioned perhaps, but so many people trying to tell other people what they're believing for. And instead of the people that that are told what the situation is being an encouragement, they'll start telling them why it won't work. So now they got a double problem. They were looking for somebody that would help them. Now they got somebody working against them. And I've seen over and over and over again, I've seen people get talked out of the things of God because some well-meaning person, Christian friend, whatever it might be, somebody talked them out of it or planted a seed of doubt that they didn't overcome. I'm just telling you what's worked for me. I don't tell anybody my, my stuff. I don't tell anybody. I've had stuff that I believe God for, and, and my wife has said after the fact, well, I didn't know you were believing for that. And I said, yeah, you're right, you didn't. There have been things that I believe for, both for the church and personally, that my wife would not have agreed with me about because God spoke to me about it and put it in my heart, not in hers. See, just because God puts something in my heart doesn't mean he's going to put it in somebody else's. And I see people making this mistake over and over and over again. They have something in their heart. Maybe it's a business deal. And boy, they're believing God for this business deal to come through. They're believing God for this great financial sum of money to come in. And because it's in their heart, they think that somebody else is going to be able to agree with that. But that financial sum may be more than somebody else can can hold on to or take hold with you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, shouldn't we have people to agree? The right people, yeah. I'm believing for some things with the church right now that I wouldn't dare tell you what it is. Because as soon as I did, half the crowd would go, (gasps) well, I don't want to deal with the, (gasps) I'd just rather believe God. Are you with me? Jesus seems to understand something about this principle because he cuts out the crowd. He doesn't let anybody except his closest associates go with him. Now, I don't think he picked the ones that are going to agree with him because they didn't. This was way over the head. He chose the ones that he was planning to teach through this circumstance. So he sent a crowd out. He suffered no man to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he came to the ruler of the, the I'm sorry, he came to the house 
of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come to them, he said unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleeps. This little girl is not dead. She's asleep. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. In the Jewish culture, the reason that there's such a big crowd at the house is because these are professional mourners. In the Jewish culture, the same thing is true today. The more people you've got weeping and wailing and crying and making a big show at your funeral or the funeral of somebody that you, that's a, a loved one, the more important and well-liked and well-known that person was. And so many times, friends of the families or stuff like that would hire these people, people that never even knew who these, the, the dead loved one was, to come and make a big show. I never have understood. I, I, I hate funerals, first of all. And I really hate funeral homes because you never know what you're going to get into. And you might run into somebody, and, and in our culture, it's, you know, well-intentioned because it's a loved one, somebody that's just distraught or whatever. But you wind, wind up, in, in some cases, with somebody in hysterics. Well, what are you going to do with somebody in hysterics? Jesus has got a whole crowd full of people in hysterics, fake hysterics for the most part. But Jesus walks into the middle of the crowd and what he says has everything to do with what's going to happen next. He said, why are you folks crying? Why are you hysterical? The, le- the little girl is not dead. She's only asleep. Now, folks, let me ask you something. What are professional mourners, wake mourners good at? Dead people. If there's one thing they know, it's when somebody's dead. And so what do they do? They stopped their hysterics and laughed him to scorn, verse 40 says. They went from weeping and wailing to laughing at Jesus pretty quick, didn't they? Nobody stopped and said, what? What do you mean she's not dead? Everybody immediately goes from this hysterical mourning tumult to laughing at Jesus and, who do you think you are? We know dead people when we see them. But when he had put them all out, notice what Jesus did. Jesus cleared the room. Now, why is that? Because faith won't work in the presence of some unbelief. There are some things even in your life, and I guess it goes in some respect, it goes back to the other principle I was talking about. There are some things you're going to have to isolate yourself from, some people you're going to have to isolate yourself from, some situations you're going to have to isolate yourself from if your faith is going to be affected. If you're going to stand in faith, you can't hang around with just everybody. Because they're going to, sooner or later, they're going to see that you're operating a different way and they're going to call it into question. And they're not going to be influenced to the positive by your stand of faith. Now, they may be influenced after you get the victory. Maybe. That doesn't even bring the results that we'd oftentimes like for it to. But when you're in the middle of your stand of faith, People that don't understand are not your friends. They're just not. So Jesus cleared the room. I wonder how he was able to do that. I wonder if Jesus said, now you folks, you just go on. Well, they've been paid to, to weep and wail over this dead girl. How did he get them out? Jesus put them out. Jesus moved the crowd along. Now, I'm not saying that he was ugly about it. I'm not saying that he took a whip like in the, the, the temple and run, chased them out like the money changers. But he got rid of the crowd. He cleared the house. So the guy they're thinking is crazy 
is the one that's left with the daughter and her parents. But when he had put them all out, he took the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entered in where the damsel was lying. Please notice nobody else that we have record of has spoken a word. I think that's significant. Because the only word that's been spoken over this situation, other than what Jesus has said when he got there, was what the father said, come lay hands on my daughter that she may be healed and she shall live. Nobody else we have record of has said a word except Jesus, and most of that was to the crowd. And Jesus told the crowd, she's only sleeping. Now, whether you know this or not, Jesus had to expend his faith too. When Jesus told the crowd, she's not dead, she's only sleeping, Jesus knew that she had died. What he's saying by faith is she won't stay dead. She'll wake up just like she's been asleep. So he took the damsel by the hand, verse 41, and said unto her, Talitha Kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. I guess dying makes you hungry. I'm not sure how that works. But you'll see that on several occasions when somebody was raised from the dead. The instruction from the Lord was give them something to eat. Now, is there any possibility that this is going to stay quiet? None. She's had a big crowd. There's nothing to say that the big crowd's not still outside. Some may be. But regardless, whether they've left, whether it's just a deserted group, of family and and, uh, the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, or whether there's still a a group of people outside, as soon as this woman, uh, as soon as this little 12-year-old girl sets foot outside of her house, everybody's going to know it. Now, I don't have any doubt that people will say, well, she must not have been dead after all. We were called prematurely. She wasn't really risen from the dead. She probably just was asleep and everybody thought she was asleep and her breathing had slowed down to such a degree that, that they made a mistake in the diagnosis. And after all, that nutcase guy that came by said she wasn't dead anyway, that she was just asleep. Maybe he was right after all. Who knows what was, what was going to take place from that point on. But there's no way in the world it's going to stay quiet. No way in the world she, she's, this, this situation is going to stay quiet. But Jesus doesn't want them to spread it. He doesn't want them to spread it. So he charges them and says, don't do it. Now, here's what I want you to see. Two examples, side by side, connected. One, an impossible case of healing. The woman with the issue of blood. Absolutely impossible. She's got an incurable condition, nothing medical science can do for her. And her faith changed the situation. The other, the other example is Jairus and the daughter. Not only is she in a critical condition when it began, but she went past the point of critical and it became a too late situation because she died. And that was still Changed and solved by faith. Folks, I want you to understand something. Faith will change anybody in any situation. Turn with me to to, uh, Psalm 107. Psalm 107. I've always been intrigued by this passage of Scripture. Verse 20 is a beautiful Scripture that... I've stood on for a number of times. I'm sorry. What did I tell you to turn to? Psalm 107, right? Okay. I told you the right thing. I just turned to the wrong thing. 
Psalm 107 verse 20 says, He sent His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. But I want to read the context to you. Let's start in verse 17. It says, Fools, because of their transgression, that's sin, and because of their iniquities, that's sin, are afflicted. In other words, some of your troubles in life are going to be caused by your own wrongdoings. Now, hopefully, once we find Jesus and become righteous by the blood of Jesus, being made righteous and new creatures in Christ Jesus and start walking in the word, we minimize that. But a lot of people's trouble, a lot of things people want me to pray about are caused by their own wrongdoings. I know that some people have come to me and said, Pastor Mike, I'm in such a financial mess. Please pray for me that God will bail me out. Well, it took them 10 years of getting themselves into debt and they want me to pray one prayer and get them out overnight. Some of our trouble is self-inflicted. I know some of the greatest trouble I've ever found myself in 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 my life has been through my own stupidity. In many cases, I knew better than to do what I did when I did it, but I did it anyway. And then, boy, it cost me. And in some cases, even after I was trying to be led by the Holy Spirit, I knew I was doing the wrong thing, and it cost me a lot more than I thought that it would. I had an idea, well, I know this is not exactly the right thing, but I don't see any other option right now. And so I'm just going to do it. And it may cost me a little bit, but it won't cost me a lot. And it wound up costing me more than a lot in a number of different ways. Well, what do we do in the situation like that? Well, the devil's always right there on my shoulder saying, well, you brought this on yourself, buddy. How are you going to get God to help you when you did this to yourself? But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says fools because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat. That's why we get into iniquities and transgressions. Because our soul abhors the word. We turn away from the word. We don't choose the word as our path to order our steps. Their soul abhors all manner of meat and they draw near to the gates of death. That's what iniquities and sins will do. It'll take you away from God's plan and God's blessings and it'll bring you to the gates of death. In other words, the consequence of sin. Then, verse 19, boy, how many of us have found ourselves in this situation? Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he said, too bad for you. You got yourself in this mess. You get yourself out. You reading the same verse I am? It's not what he says. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. How he do that? He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Verse 21. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Folks, there is no situation that faith won't change. None whatsoever. Smith Wigglesworth was on a train one time, and he said that uh, the train was pretty crowded, and he got on uh, one stop, and then a stop later, uh, a lady and, and uh, looked to be her son or a ward or somebody like that was traveling with her, got on, and, uh, and he said she looked so depressed. She looked so dejected. I could just see it on her face. I knew something was wrong with it, so I just inquired. I just asked her. I said, ma'am, what's wrong? And she said that she was on her way to the hospital, that whatever situation, whatever diagnosis or disease she had, the doctor said the only hope for her is to have her leg amputated. So she was on her way to a hospital in a nearby city, on the, uh, further along on the train line, to have her leg amputated. And, and Wigglesworth said to her, ma'am, Jesus can heal you. And he said this. He said, as soon as I said those words, Jesus can heal you. He said, here was a woman without any hope. Who knows what kind of knowledge she had of God or or the healing power of God or what she thought about Jesus or or who knows. He didn't even stop and ask her. 
He didn't try to get her saved. He didn't say anything. He said, Jesus can heal you. And she, he said, she lit up. Her face lit up. She said, oh, I believe that. I believe that Jesus can do something about it. And at that time, the train stopped again, and, and, and people just flooded onto the train. Wigglesworth said this. He said, the first thought that came to my mind is, you've missed your opportunity. Now the train is too crowded for you to do anything. There's no hope for her. But he said that he's found out that difficulties just give God a greater opportunity to show his glory. So with the train crowded, everybody pressed up against one another in the middle of the train. He leaned down and put his hand right above her knee and he prayed with a loud voice. He didn't do anything quiet. He prayed with a loud voice for her to be healed and for this sickness and disease to depart from her body. She immediately began screaming. She said, oh, I'm healed. I can feel it. I can tell. She started jumping around on that leg that was diagnosed and ready to be amputated by the doctor, waiting for her to get there so he could cut it off. She began jumping around and said, I am not going to the hospital. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to live a right life. I'm going to live uh, with my leg healed for the rest of my days. Wigglesworth said for the rest of her life in that town she lived in right there on that train line, she was a testimony of the healing power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but my first inclination in a situation like that might have been to find out what the situation was. Why do they want to take off your leg? How long have you had this situation? Oh, we cut ourselves off so much from the things of God by being smart. Because man's wisdom is foolishness in the eyes of God. The Bible says over and over and over again, with God all things are possible. The Bible says again and again, with, to the man that believes all things are possible. Why do we put limits on what God can do? Why in the world do we do that? We all have a natural tendency, and of course the devil tries to help us along in that regard. But if we could ever learn, if we could ever get over the hump and realize that there are no limits on what God will do, if we just simply reach out in faith, then we'd see his power and manifestation in much greater measure. Let's read Psalm 107 again. Fools, because of their transgressions and their iniquities, are destroyed, or afflicted, I'm sorry. Their soul abhors all manner of meat, and they draw near the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and healed them. Folks, that means two things. That means, number one, Jesus is the word made flesh, and Jesus came and paid the price for sickness and disease. Every sickness and disease. Every attack of the enemy. Everything that the enemy can bring against you physically, financially, and otherwise. He sent his word. God sent the word. The word was made flesh. Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins and for your sicknesses. But it also means he gives us the written word. And it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to break his word. It's impossible for his word to fail in even the smallest manner. That's why to the man that believes all things are possible. Because all it takes is just taking hold of the word and refusing to give up. Because the word can't fail. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Notice verse 21. This is part of it. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You know, one of the things Wigglesworth said he did in his meetings, well, not just he said he did it, but it was, it was recorded in, um, in almost every campaign that he ever had. He'd lay hands on people. He'd start off preaching the word and just 
simple teaching. And if you've ever read any of his sermons, they're not deep in any way whatsoever. He only had like a third grade education. He wasn't a learned man in any way. He wouldn't even, he refused to even read newspapers and stuff. Anything other than the Bible, he wasn't interested in reading. He wound up later in his life saying that he regretted that he made that public because some people started using that as a pattern and saying that it was wrong to read other stuff. And he said, I never intended for that to be the case. He said, I just never did it. I never wanted to read a newspaper. I never wanted to read anything except the Word. I was so in love with God and in love with the Word. That's all I wanted to read. So the only education he had was what he gained from the, from the knowledge of the Word. I think he's better off than a lot of people that are educated in schools. But his sermons are very simple. Very simple. He just gave a couple of scriptures. He talked about his love for Jesus. In the middle of his sermons, very often he'd get so excited that he'd just break out in song and praise. Had his big booming voice. He said, and after that, or everybody gave testimony to the fact that after that, he'd just minister to the sick. Just lay hands on the sick. No great power in evidence. No great anointing that he claimed to have or anything like that. He just said, Mark eleven twenty three, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. Shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Wigglesworth said the, the thing that kept him from doubting in his heart, and he taught this. He said, doubt in the heart comes from somebody that's not in love with Jesus. He said, because just as true love will keep a husband and a wife or, or sweethearts together, no matter whether they're in close proximity or not, their loyalty is bonded by their love. He said, your loyalty to the word is bonded by your love for Jesus. I love that. Isn't that good? See, everything was simple for him. It wasn't some big theological discussion for him. It was just simple. So I love Jesus, so I'm going to stick with the word. I just refuse to give up on the word because I love Jesus. He also said this, and I've always, uh, I, I've given this a lot of thought, and I'm, I'm coming to the place where I understand it a little better. But he said, to try to understand the love of God through natural human love is foolish. He said, because to think that God is like somebody here on the earth that you would love or would treat you with kindness or goodness or whatever because you treat them that way, that's not the way the love of God can be understood. He said, the love of God can be understood only by recognizing that the nature of God is to give you everything that Jesus purchased for you. That the goodness of God is a result of the one act that you've made by making Jesus your Lord and Savior. Everything else is not dependent on obedience. It's not dependent, well, obedience to the word, but he's not talking about works. He said everything else is not dependent on you doing the right thing or doing good thing or doing good works. It's dependent on one thing, and that is being in Christ. When you understand that that is the key to receiving every spiritual blessing and everything that pertains to life and godliness, then you'll be on the track to seeing the power of God at work. Well, that's something that you own, isn't it? So Wigglesworth would just lay hands on the sick. He'd just lay hands on them. He usually anointed them with oil when he laid hands on them. But he just pronounced them well according to the authority of the word of God. We say that this person is healed of whatever the case was. He'd always ask him what it was. And he was, uh, he was kind of a different type of person because if uh, um, he had been healed of appendicitis, he had an appendicitis that, uh, that had lingered for uh, uh, six months and it had drained him of every ounce of strength. And the doctors had told his wife that he's going to die, you know, before the day's out and that kind of stuff. And a lady from the church, a nearby church, not even the church he went to, but a lady from the church that was known as a woman of prayer showed up with another guy. 
And they came to the house where he was and they inquired about him and, the, and his wife said, well, he's upstairs in bed, but he's not receiving visitors. He's too weak to receive visitors. And they ignored her and just walked upstairs to the bedroom. This young guy, as they entered into the room, this young guy jumped up in the middle of the bed and said, come out, you devil, and hit him right in the stomach as hard as he could. Well, Wigglesworth said, I didn't have time to tell him I didn't have a devil in me. He said, next thing I knew, I was instantly healed. So it's ridiculous to try to explain it afterwards. huh? So Wigglesworth would get certain situations, stomach ailments and so forth. If somebody would say they were having a problem with their stomach or, or uh, uh, especially appendicitis or something like that, he just followed the example that somebody else had used on him and he'd rear back and wail them, off, wail them and hit them in the stomach as hard as he could. So there were some people that after they found that out would go up and say they had headaches. Instead of tr- stomach troubles or, or stuff like that. He was a, he was a real strange situation. But he, a real strange way that the, that the Lord would have him minister. But he never hit anybody. They did surveys and studies about this. He never hit anybody that wasn't instantly healed. He wouldn't hit everybody. But everybody that he did hit, hit was instantly healed. You'd need that kind of track record if you're going to start hitting people. Especially women. He hit one Irish woman in the stomach one time. She came up and said had some kind of stomach trouble. He reared back and wailed, you know, wailed off and hit her in the stomach as hard as he could. She reared back her fist and said, Brother, if it's a fight you want, you've got it. <laughs> then she realized she was healed. Now, I, I got to tell you, folks, it's not like I want God to use me in that way in any respect whatsoever. But man, oh man, oh man, wouldn't it be great to see the power of God in operation like that? So he just lay hands on people, just simply lay hands on them, simple faith in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it'd see results, usually not in the first night. Usually it took a while to build people's faith, just like it does everything else. But people would come back the next night, and some of the same people would want to get in the healing line, he wouldn't let them get in there. In fact, if somebody would sneak by the ushers or the attendants and get in the healing line, and he found out that he had laid hands on them before, he'd turn around and kick them in the seat of the pants and run them off the stage. Got in a lot of trouble for that too with people. But that's just the way he was. He'd tell people, don't you have the good sense to know that you were healed last night? And he'd see people come in several days after he had laid hands on them. He'd see them come in in wheelchairs. He'd see them come in on stretchers. And so he'd just pronounce out in the open. He'd just say, oh, thank you, Lord, that my brother back there is healed of whatever the disease, whatever the ailment was. Thank you that you're raising them up. Thank you that they're healed of cancer or tuberculosis was a big deal in his day. Thank you that they're healed of tuberculosis and healed from the ravages of that terrible disease. And thank you, Lord, that you're raising them up. We just thank you. Then he'd lead everybody in singing the chorus of only believe. And the people that had had the hands laid on them the night before, sometimes two nights before, then they would start getting their healings. It wasn't always an instant thing. Now, after he'd been there for several days, maybe a week or so, then the faith of the people would be raised. And so he'd get a lot more instant results. But you know, an interesting thing about it, Wigglesworth never claimed to ever have been called to a healing ministry. He just said, I act on the word in faith. I saw Mark eleven twenty three, and I acted on it. And man, did it work. I could tell you another story about something similar to that. Any of you know who T.L. Osborne is? Was? T.L. Osborne ministered to millions of people overseas. T.L. Osborne said in the later years of his life, he said, there was never a moment in time where God ever called me to the mission field or called me to the ministry in any way whatsoever. 
said, I just saw what the word said about go ye into all the world, and so I went. Worked pretty well for him. He'd get in crusades and campaigns with a million people at a time. Pray a general prayer and then start praising God after he prayed the prayer for healing. And people start getting healed like crazy. Usually not right when he prayed, but while they were singing praises unto God. Did you notice verse 21 of Psalm 107? Oh, that men would praise God for his wonderful works. For his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. See, that's part of he sent his word and healed us. That's part of it. That's part of it. In many cases, it's not that somebody needs to be laid, needs to have hands laid on them again or needs to be ministered to again. They just need to start thanking God for what's already been ministered. I thank God that our brother back there is healed from MS and the ravages thereof and that the Lord is raising him up. Hallelujah. Let's all stand.